Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So Sterling Crawford Moss, born the 17th of September 1929 in West Kensington, London, England. Sir Sterling is a legendary figure in British motorsport and is regarded by many commentators as the greatest driver never to become Formula One world champion. In all forms of racing, he clocked up 212 wins in 529 races, 16 of which were Formula One victories, including three at the Monaco Grand Prix, while he also triumphed at the British Grand Prix on two occasions. He was runner-up in the Formula One World Drivers' Championship in four successive seasons, from 1955 to 1958. While away from Formula One, he made his mark in sports car racing, most memorably by winning the 1955 Mille Miglia and the Nürburgring 1,000km race three years in a row. After his professional racing career was brought to a premature end due to a serious crash at Goodwood in 1962, he retained his position as Britain's most famous sportsman for many years and continued to work in motorsport as a commentator. He was made an OBE in 1959 and received a knighthood for services to motor racing in 2000, while he was inducted into the International Motorsports Hall of Fame in 1990. In 2006, Sir Sterling's achievements were recognised further when he's awarded the FIA Gold Medal and in recent times he's come to the attention of a new generation as the narrator of the animated children's series Rory the Racing Car. The crowd's mad with delight for it's the first time in 34 years that a British car's won a major Grand Prix. Nice work, Sterling. The revs rise as the flag goes up, down and they're away. A wet track, Sterling Moss shows off his teeth, with John Setti behind him in second place. Among 22 starters in the Australian Grand Prix at Melbourne, Sterling Moss was perhaps the most formidable opponent. They're away on their 80 laps of a circuit that's inclined to be loose and bumpy, so look out for thrills during this 250-mile classic. Moss takes Woodcut Corner and the checkered flag. You were born in uh, West London, but grew up in Bray in Berkshire. Yep. I think a very comfortable upbringing, is that right? Yes, we had a lovely house down there, and my father was a very successful dentist, so my sister rode horses, and hey, it was a really nice place. The house um, is called Long White Cloud House, and I think Sir Edward Elgar wrote his cello concertos in the house. Oh, really? I didn't know that. But I know Long White Cloud is New Zealand for New Zealand, of course. 
your dad was, you say he was a dentist, he, he couldn't have afforded to send you to fine schools and live so comfortably, but he had a chain of dentists, is that right? Yeah, well, he, he was very successful. I mean, he had, I think, 18 different establishments all around London, and, uh, you know, he'd go around doing certain operations and what have you, and then employ other dentists to fill in for him when he wasn't there. Um, so tell us about uh, growing up then. Um, you're in the house. How did you enjoy school? Uh, I, I didn't enjoy the first school that much. You know, it was a nursery school, whatever it was. But then I, I went on to what was known as Clewer Manor then, and now, of course, Halebury. And uh, that, that was very nice because I, I liked sports very much and was very sport orientated. Um, I, I rode horses, but didn't have a horse at school. But uh, the going to school actually at Haleby was was pretty nice. I, I'm not really a great scholar, so it could have been better. Except the sporting side was so good. What things were you? What th- sports did you excel at? Uh, rugby, because I'm a, I'm a, quite a sprinter, which, in fa- funnily enough, helped me in motor racing. Because with the 24 hours in those days, of course, you ran across the road. Just not nowadays because of seat belts, but you ran across the road. At Le Mans, there. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Le, Le, any Le Mans start, not only at Le Mans, but other races that were held with the same start. Okay. You could have a st- they had a certain amount of starts stationary, accelerating away from standstill, and you had other ones, of course, where you ran across and jumped in and, and uh, sped off as fast as you could. It's very hard. I mean, we'll talk a lot about um, how different motor racing was from what people see now particularly in formula one yeah um and it's hard now even to imagine uh, i'm doing this for the listeners that these magnificent sports cars at le mans were lined up and other places yeah. um at an angle getting ready, not on a grid at an angle from the start and you the drivers used to run across the road to them that's what, right what was the point of that why didn't you just start in the car well, the point was it, it is, it's surprising how difficult it is to run across and jump in the car get your finger on the start button your your left left foot on the clutch the right foot ready with the accelerator and you had to organize it all together and therefore people would, would pull off at different speeds and people would say well why is it important for 24 hours it's important because if there's a shunt you're not involved in it unless of course you crash but I mean so anywhere anywhere of all those cars pulling out if one hits another one unless it you want to get off the, the, off the exa- loss exactly you, you mentioned your sister, Pat, there. Yeah. She was also a very talented sports person. Oh, she, Pat was, was very, very good on cars. And, and before that, of course, riding. I mean, she rode for England for three years. But then she came into, into motoring after having said to me, oh, those smelly old things. But she joined in racing, and, and she was very, very successful three times, I think, European champion. All right, let me ask you an obvious question, but one I think goes to the root of what we're going to talk about for the next two hours. Where did you get your love of cars from? Oh, my father. My father had been a, uh, he was a dentist, but he'd raced at Brooklands, and he also, he also ta- talked his father into sending him to America to take part in Indianapolis. 1924, I think it was, and uh, he said to his father, you know, the very best bridge work is done at the University of, uh, of Indianapolis or somewhere. Uh, I th- would you send me over there to learn about it properly? So his father contributed without realising what he was going to do, and he went over there and had, had a career of racing over there as well as over here in Europe. There's so many things we could talk about today. I also um, noted that uh, your name Crawford, your middle name, is spelled C-R-A-U, which suggests to me you might come out of the same family as William Wallace, because I think that's the maternal line of, of, of the Braveheart. Oh, that is possible. I, mean, I, I don't really, I've never really looked at my family tree, but I know that my mother wanted to call me Hamish, and thank goodness my father said no, think again. And she said, what about Sterling? Because that's where she was brought up.
hence the I rather than the E. Uh -huh. And so that's how I got my name. Okay, now, well, we were trying, I was trying to get through to you how you uh, came to love cars, and you said your father had been a race driver. Yeah, Dad had, been, had, had raced over here at Brooklands and also, of course, at Indianapolis. And uh, so I grew up with quite an interest in that. I then read Prince Bira's books, which made me even keener. And I thought when, by the time I was 16, I, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to go and race in Europe with a, with a racing car. No, no interest in dentistry? No, no. I, I actually, if I if I'd had a, if I knew more uh, mentally, if I had uh, learnt more at school, I could have passed the exams and might have done that. So I'm quite pleased I didn't. When did you first remember driving a car? Then, oh, I drove a car when I was about six. But that was on the, on the farm at uh, Bray. Uh, my father bought an old Austin 7, uh, which just had literally the, the uh, bonnet and, and a couple of seats. And I used to go around with learnt to drive in that vehicle on my father's farm, which was about 12 acres. And uh, so that helped an awful lot. And were you always keen on driving fast? Oh, yes. I mean, uh, as a kid, and kids like going quickly. I mean, because there's a, there's a number of quotes from you I see, uh, you know, uh, throughout your career. And, of course, we're talking about things that happened a long time ago. You've kept driving um, until very, very recently. Um, there's a lot of talk about safety and about um, good manners and that. You know, mostly just talk about driving very quickly. Yeah, well, driving quickly to me is, is yeah, I get the enjoyment, but we had a, a bank that I could pretend was the banking at, at uh, Monza, and I'd go around that, and, you know, and it was just, just a wonderful upbringing. For those of you who are regular listeners to the programme, this is the first time you've ever been invited to and are doing the programme from um, the home of the person involved. Sir Sterling Moss's home, of course, is a very famous house in central London, which over the years has had some of the most highly advanced technology uh, ever installed into it and has been described more than once as the model for James Bond's lairs in the films. And so we're very pleased that we've been able to come here. Thank you. So, Sterling, um, talk about your early years for us, please, uh, racing cars. You, you were originally well, a horse rider. Yeah, I, wrote, I, I did that really to shut my mother up. She was mad on horses. <laughs> and so I did that. Then my sister got old enough and she started to do well. And therefore, my father and I sort of split... My mother went went with my sister to our horse shows, and my father would come with me usually to to uh, motor racing events. Mind you, in those days, remember we only had hill climbs. At the start of my career, uh, the, no race tracks existed, and then they built they built a few old airports and made them into race tracks. But uh, but uh, other places didn't exist. So. Um you, when you were doing this, the uphill trialling, um, did you have a, one eye on the on the, the sort of motorsport that was developing the Grand Prix scene? The Grand Prix scene, something that I was hoping I might take part in later. Then John Heath came along, uh, John Heath being a, a car designer and builder, and the car's called an HWM. Not very successful, but HWM stood for Hersham Walton Motors. And John called up and said, would I like to drive with with his team in Europe, which of course is exactly what I wanted. I mean, there was no, no real racing over here. And so I joined him and in a, a really rather non-competitive car, but gave me great enjoyment and allowed me to see all the circuits. In Formula Two, this is, I guess. Yeah, so that was Formula been, yeah. Two. I mean, we should, we should make the point here, Sterling, because we're about to start talking about your Formula One career, that unlike today, um, where the drivers are contracted to just do testing and driving for Formula One teams, 
you and the generation of legendary drivers that came came along before and after you, you did every kind of, of, of driving, every kind of formula, every kind of car. Oh yes, yeah. so, uh, I drove 108 different cars in my career. In, in 600 and some races so uh, you know when racing finished in Europe which was usually say September October I'd then fly off to Australasia or South America or South Africa so I could continue racing so I was actually doing about 52 races a year so that you're doing formula racing you're doing um, sports car sports racing car. you're doing uphill Tur- trials uh, yeah, and touring also cars. Uh, touring cars yeah, and speed you're attempting speed records and I guess you've first come to real attention to people in 1950 when at the uh, Autodrome de mont uh, outside Paris, a steeply banked yeah. track, you, um, you well, in the course of two years, you broke two different speed records there. Yeah, we went there, as the idea of Leslie Johnson's to promote the new Jaguar in 52, and we went there to do 100 miles an hour for 24 hours, then it went so well, we said, okay, look, let's not stop there, we'll do another attempt, which was, it was seven days and nights at 100 miles an hour. You drove around a banked track for a week continuously. Yeah, I mean, there were four of us. I mean, it wasn't yeah. me on my own. Oh, you, but, uh, you know, the man but Johnson, it, Bert Hadley and Jack Fairman. That's right, correct. Here. Yeah. Um, do you know that, uh, I've got the, the, the figure here, in that week you covered 16,851 miles. Yeah, which was quite a lot in those days. <laughs> yeah, in those days when miles were real yeah, miles, exactly. yeah, it was quite exactly. a lot. Um, you you got into Formula One eventually. Yeah. Um, and for the first few years, I think it was quite a struggle, wasn't it? Oh, I had a tremendous struggle because the car the car that I got was not competitive. Which then. car was that? Uh, well, I had the HWM. Right. And uh, you know, I was looking forward to trying to join in with the with the big racers. And so somebody said to me, "Look, what you've got to do, you have to probably because I went to my father at least went to see Mercedes. Said, would they give me a test? And Merck said, look, we've seen him doing very well in, in very moderate uh, cars. We suggest you get a better car, something like a Maserati. So we went down the road in Modena, and my father, I wasn't there, my father and, and Ken Gregory, a good friend of mine, went there and saw uh, Omar Orsi and said, look, can we, we'd like to buy a 250F, which, which we did. And I, in fact, coming back from a holiday abroad, and they said, uh, my father said on the telephone, this is on the, I'd been on a boat, and so ships in those days, you had to go wireless steel. It wasn't like it is now. And they told me we'd got this car and for me to race and so on. And I said, well, who paid for it? They said, well, I had. So I, <laughs> because it was all the money I got at the, at one various, whole, uh, you know, hill clubs and stuff. Yeah. And so we bought this Mazda and then went to the first race, which was a Bern. And uh, when I arrived there, the first day, it was raining. And uh, I was very lucky because I, li- I liked the rain. And I managed to put my private Maserati on pole position ahead of all of all the other Maseratis and the Mercedes. And that night, Neubauer came to me and said, would I drive for him in 1955? So that was an absolute dream. That would get you into one of the leading teams. Ma- Absolutely. The, 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 the best team, team in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, that's the story of how you got into a decent car. I want to go back, if, you, if I may, to before that happened, in the early years of your Formula One career. Talk to us, if you would, um, try and paint a picture of what Formula One was like. I mean, I've, I recognise some of these as the great names of uh, Formula One history. Juan Manuel Fangio, Alberto Ascari, Britain's own Mike Hawthorne. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't the global... Um, 
industry that it is now. Talk to me about being a motor racer among those people in the early 50s. No, well, I mean, the thing was, obviously, the, the races, I didn't have a chance of winning anything outright until I got a, got the Maserati. But uh, you, in those days, we'd race on roads, cause not, not in England, of course, because you're not allowed to close the roads, or weren't. Uh, but all around Europe, we go to Mete and Perigo and Le Mans and, of course, Monaco, all these different places. They'd set up a racetrack, we go there and we practice on the on the say the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then race on Sunday. On Monday, we move on to the next track, and it was a sort of circus that went round. The car engines were in the front of the cars at this yes, stage. Yes, they were. Um, you were wearing what looked to me like a woolen pullover. Yeah. Rather than a boy, rather than a fireproof suit. Yes, I don't see any signs of uh, safety belts. No, no, never, never raced in for. I never raced any races other than in saloons with a safety belt because you want to get out. If it catches fire, boy, you need to get out. Um, and it looks to me again, looking at in pre- preparation for this, watching you drive in, the, in these early fifties um, films, you're sitting very high up in the vehicle. Yeah. Um, in the car, and you are. It's not like now where they could literally drive with their little finger. You are properly resting with the steering wheel. Oh yeah, well I mean the proper cars, you know, they really were. But my father, I remember when I went to it, I went to him and said, "Look, Dad, I want to do racing," and he said, "Don't be ridiculous, we can't afford that." Well, I said, "Well, look, Dad, I found somebody who's prepared to pay me a small amount to go around Europe." He said, "Okay," he said, "but you're going to wear a crash hat." And I can remember saying to him, "Dad, that's a bit sissy." All the fast drivers, like Vimeo and Sommer, you know, they're all running with those, those cloth helmets. He said, "No, you're going to wear a crash hat, and that's it." Which I did, and, uh, and that's, it started from there. When you were in the poorer cars, uh, Sir Sterling, um, did you did you still know that you were a, going to be a great driver? Did you know how much talent you had? Did other people know you were going to be a great driver? Yes, I, I had some very good write-ups in by Kay Peter and Tommy Wisdom and so on in, in the national newspapers. Uh, obviously, I didn't know. I mean, I, all I knew was I enjoyed doing it and I was, and I was doing better than other people in similar cars. So uh, I thought, well, you know, if I keep going at this, maybe I can get to the top and, and race, you know, against Scari and all those people. Well, I'm going to give you a, a figure now, and I'm going to ask you what kept you going, because in your first three seasons in Formula 1, 1951, 1952, 1953, you didn't score a single point. Um, how do you keep going? Well, no, because when they put on races, they've got to find enough cars to make you know, make a proper grid, so therefore they'd pay a certain amount of premium de départ, and then you go and race at Bern or anywhere, you know, in Monza or whatever. And that's how it worked. And so in 1954 then, as you say, you bought the Maserati 250F. Yeah. You raced um, uh, at Monza in the Italian Grand Prix, passing both Ascari and Fangio. Um, and, and then the head of Mercedes-Benz, uh, Alfred Neubauer, came and signed you up for 1955. You really arrived. Yes. Um, did your ambitions then, did you think, I'm going to be the world champion now? No, I, I, I know that you know that was my ultimate aim. If I could, yes, I wanted to beat all the other drivers, but uh, it, it doesn't happen that quickly. Well, talk to me about the drivers who were your rivals then, as because we're going to talk in the next section about the your attempts to win the world championship. Um, Fangio's name, of course, has become as legendary as your own. Um, his right. surname has become as legendary as your Christian name, your first name. Yeah. Um, Ascari. Talk to me about the, the, these drivers and. Did you become friends with them? Is that how it works? Um, not close friends. I mean, I was 
pretty close to Fangio, but I couldn't speak to him because he speaks Spanish and I and I didn't. But you know, using one's hands and things, and we're only talking about cars and crumpets, so it's not, not too big a subject. No. But uh, you know, it was a wonderful life. I can tell you, you know, you, you do the race and have the party in the evening, and so then the next week you start, you drive on to the new place, Pescara, wherever it might be, learn the circuit, and then have a, a race and. Uh, the whole life was was a was a fab. I just can't think of anything else that would have been uh, give me a better lifestyle. I was eighteen, nineteen, and uh, going all over Europe. Uh, and th those days, of course, you've got to remember we had fuel rationing and all these sort of problems over here. But in Europe, of course, it was the sport was very much more uh, much better organised than over here. I mean, to be able to race every week, chase the girls in the evening, you know, all that sort of stuff, it, it's a pretty good life, I must say. Um, so, Stanley, we'll come back to your newfound Grand Prix uh, possibilities in the, in the Mercedes in just a second. But in 1955, the same year as you started yeah. driving with them, you also became very, very famous around the world because you won a race called a Millimilia, the yeah. thousand-mile race in Italy. Um, this race, I think, was terribly important because I think it established both you and also Mercedes as, as a serious uh, racing brand again. But the whole thing sounds absolutely mad. Tell me what you had to do. Well, the Mealy Mealy, you need to know that about six, 700 cars take part. 700? Yeah. The first car goes 9 o'clock at night, and then at half-minute intervals, all the cars go. Then you go at midnight. When you get to midnight, then they go at, at minute intervals. I was 7.22. That was at 600-odd cars, and, and I, was, I wasn't the last one to leave. This is on roads, roads in Italy that have been closed down, and you the, go down the entire length of Italy, back the, up the other... The roads weren't closed, but people didn't use them. They were so keen over there. They, you know, they'd watch it, and they'd. You've got people like uh, doctors and and refrigerated trucks and so on. So they weren't clear. The roads were. You couldn't be sure going round a blind bend that it was going to be all right. That was the biggest worry. And so you were expected to go flat out through day and night. Um, for well, only, it only took 10 hours, just over 10, uh, 10 uh, hours. Well, you're being a pixie now, aren't you? <laughs> 10 hours of driving at the kind of speed you're doing um, is pretty extraordinary. Well, it's 1,000 miles, that's what it's up to, really. Yeah, you had, you had a, a navigator, Dennis Jenkinson. Yeah. Uh, tell us about the race. Well, let me tell you about Jenks first, because yeah, yeah. I needed a passenger, you know, for this event, and not to drive, but to give me no signals and so on. And Jenks, of course, had been three times world champion in the sidecar. And, of course, I knew him because I was racing Formula 3 in my early days as well. He was a motorcycle uh, journalist. Therefore, most weekends I'd see him at some race or other. So we knew each other pretty well. And I said, would you like to come on this? He said, "That's I'd love, love to. And that's how that started. Tell us about the entire race then. Yeah, he, well, what we did, you start on the ramp, you go down the ramp in, in Brescia, and then you go all round Italy over three or four mountain passes, come back to Brescia, and that's where it finishes, a thousand miles. Um, did you, you, obviously you started, uh, I know the car started in reverse order of power, so you're, you're aware that you're always overtaking more and more people, yes? Oh, uh, oh yeah, I mean, there's 600 cars to be passed. I mean, I must tell you, in the first uh, 50 kilometres, there were probably more than 50 cars on the side of the road burning because there were you know, a lot of enthusiastic Italian hairdressers <laughs> would go faster, take down the car and all this sort of thing. It was, it was open, really open to anybody who wanted to get to race. I mean, extraordinary. 
can you remember back to ten hours? Was it was it event free or uh, did you? Uh, were there crashes that you had? Oh, we didn't have a, a few little things. I mean, I I thought I knew where I was on the thousand miles, which I didn't. Therefore, I had to take a jump over the pavement. Things, little things like that. But in print, in principle, it was just get, get in there and and go as fast as you could. And after ten hours. You beat Juan Manuel Fangio, the world's greatest racing yeah. driver at the time, and maybe forever. You are. You'll tell me that later on. Yeah. By thirty-two minutes only. Yes. Well, yeah. Well, thirty-two minutes. I can tell you, is a long is a long way when you're moving fast. The average speed, I think, was just just ninety-eight point nine eight or thereabouts. Ninety-nine miles an hour. Ninety-nine. For 10 yeah. Hours, yeah. yeah. Um, it's quite quick. Well, listen. Um, you are. You became the only Briton to win the Millimedia. Yes. Before the race, Fangio gave you what has been described since as a magic pill. I have no idea what it was. All I know is he said, if, if you're going to get tired, take this pill. Now, so I was on dope, I realise now. <laughs> yeah. Looking ahead, dope didn't come into it then, but it must have been something like that because not only did I do the race, which was quite long, we started early, of course, about 7 o'clock or just before... It kept me awake to do the whole race and and all the rejoicing at the end, of course, which went on an hour or so. And then and then I drove back to uh, to Stuttgart, not in the race car, but in my private car to Stuttgart because I thought the, the directors there would like to see the see my see me and so on and so forth. So it worked really well. You drove after the Emilia Emilia. You drove to Stuttgart. Yeah. Okay. It was a pretty bonky thing to do. Yes, absolutely. A lot of this uh, is. Uh, and I'm happy to, to, to talk about this. A lot of this is in your new book, which is just coming out now. It's called Sterling Moss, My Racing Life. Lewis Hamilton has written the foreword for the book. Yeah. Um, I'm not uh, an expert on motor cars. I'm not an expert on car racing. But the book itself is fantastically beautiful. Um, not, so, not, not too much to read, which is great. No. And just page after page after page of you beaming out of wonderful motor cars some of them with your face covered in oil and dirt some of them cuddling up to very very good looking uh, girls and models and things yes. um it's a very good book oh thank you very much i must say it's a lot a lot of fun to do because it's mainly a picture book and uh, you know, in fact the great thing was to try and find pictures that hadn't been hadn't been on view before i mean that, that that's one of the things about it there's a, it's a sort of unrivaled um, collection of photographs, um, many of which I suppose you hadn't seen for a long time. No, oh, absolutely. Okay, well, look, that's 55 in the Real Emilia. You also then um, take off in the Mercedes in the Formula One season. I suppose your first great triumph then is that you win the British Grand Prix. Yeah, that, that was fantastic. I mean, to win your, I mean, the most important race to a drive, any driver is his home Grand Prix. And there it was at Aintree, and the car was absolutely superb. Uh, I managed to, Fangio did get, uh, he had a good bit of start than me, and then he got behind some back markers, and I came up to him, and then he managed to nip past them, and I followed, and uh, that was it. Um, you, 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 people would have expected to hear the phrase, um, Silverstone or Brands Hatch or even Brooklyn's there, Aintree? Yeah, Aintree, where the horses are. We actually crossed the, the horse track, I think, a couple of times. As what track. kind of a track was that then? Uh, was, it, was it a proper road? Or oh, oh, yes, it was a road. Public but roads? Yes, n not a really exciting uh, venue, you know, but uh, of course it had an enormous amount of spectators. Well, you won the race, as you say, beating Fangio by 0.2 of a second. Um, all four of the Mercedes, because those days teams were four, 
um, finished in the first four places. So a total domination for your Mercedes team. You were second in the Drivers' Championship behind Fangio, something we'll come on to talk about some more, finishing second many times in the Drivers' Championship. But 1955 also contained, if that was a triumph, um, yeah. uh, rather less uh, pleasant experience when you race at Le Mans, sharing the car with Fangio, another Mercedes yeah. presumably, but the famously 1955 Le Mans was, at, well, it was marked by disaster. Absolute I mean, it was the most terrible thing. I mean, just over 80 people were killed. One car took off. Uh, Levesque was involved in it. Mike Hawthorne was involved in it. It was this, this terrible thing that happened. Where were you? Um, you were you in the car we, or we, you were in the garage? I, I, was in, I was in the car waiting to take over. We, we had, I think, at that time, two or three uh, laps lead over the whole field. And I was waiting to take over from Fangio um, because we were doing, I think, about two and a half hour stints each. Um, do you, how did you get the news? I mean, because uh, was it near you or did you? Oh, it was terrible. I mean, it was within 200 yards. And I mean, it really, the whole problem started because one driver was trying to come into the pits, cut across another one, and unfortunately he didn't get past him. It rode up the car and then launched itself in this mass of people, of course, in the grandstands. Absolutely frightening. I mean, we are now a long, long way away from it. And I'm sure you and the people who were involved that day have had a lot of conversations about it. Was anyone to blame or is it just one of these things that happens in motor racing? Well, it shouldn't happen. That's the truth of the matter, really. Yes, a couple of drivers did things which really wasn't the best thing to do. And, and it didn't work and the car took off. And I mean, it's a pretty big car and, and weighs, you know, not far short of a tonne, 40 gallons of fuel on it or whatever it had. Uh, obviously, it was... It was Disaster. We'll come on to talk a little bit more about your Formula One career in, from 1956 onwards, because after the disaster um, at Le Mans that you told us about, Mercedes withdraw from yeah. competitive motoring and you join the Maserati team. But let me just talk again about um, the mid-50s here when you're doing this stuff, coming second in world championships and all the rest of it. Talk to me again about the lifestyle. Having established yourself in the Formula One scene, how, how are you living? Because the pictures in your new book suggest you were living like an early version of a rock star. Uh, it was pretty neat, I must say. And uh, the uh, I found that uh, if I called up, I could get uh, you know tables in restaurants and all that sort of stuff. So I suppose in the it, at the time I was a sort of beginning to be a bit of a celebrity, I suppose, on certain things. Yes. Well, we'll come on to this a bit later on because I have a theory and. Uh, you know that you'll, you'll, t you'll be too modest to, to argue uh, about it, but I, I have a theory that you were maybe Britain's very first proper celebrity who was able to do things away from the thing that made them famous, um, particularly in the 60s after you, yeah. uh, your injury forced you to retire. But right now, there's a lot of pictures. I, I don't know how to put this. There's a lot of pictures of you grinning with models in yes. your book around this time. Well, that's, that's, that's part of the way things were. You know, I mean, you get brought in uh, if they're trying to advertise something or push something or something, and you know the press would call up. Would you can, can we do a photo call here uh, and all that sort of stuff, which is which is very very uh, gratifying. Thank you very much indeed. I think we'll leave that there for the time being. Uh, so, in 1956 and 57, um, you're winning races in the Maserati, um, but you're not becoming world champion. Is it because? 
because Fangio was just so good he kept beating you? Oh, Fa Fangio certainly was the greatest Formula One driver ever, in my opinion. Uh, I could beat him in sports cars, funnily enough. I don't know why, but uh, in, in, in Grand Prix, he was, he was as good as it got. But then I'd follow him very closely. We were known as the train. Uh, the races then, the thing you've got to remember, they were a minimum of three hours. Right. Now, I won the Monaco Grand Prix in 1961. It took me three and three-quarter hours, 100 laps. So, I mean, it was, it was quite an effort on these things. Well, in 56, you, uh, you had two wins um, at, uh, in Italy, at Monza, I presume, yeah. um, and at Monaco, um, where you became something of a specialist. Talk, talk to us about the magic, uh, or, but, uh, the difficulties, first and foremost, uh, in these kind of cars and the magic of racing at Monaco. Well, Monaco is such a fabulous place. You know, you go there. I mean, no way would they allow motor racing there now if we hadn't got user rights from way, way back, you know. Every driver, I think, all of them really like it. Uh, it's very demanding. You have to be careful. It, it, it's not as dangerous as, as many others, although you're quite easy to buckle, buckle the wheel or make a mistake like that. You go through the tunnel, which is exhilarating, and the tunnel's difficult because you can't see the exit. Um, you know, you've got, you've got to drive at a blind exit. Uh, so it, it's, it is a very special type of race. Is it enjoyable or is it just very hard work? Oh, no, very enjoyable. I mean, if you're in the business, it's enjoyable if, you, if you're going well. If, if you're too slow, it wouldn't be so enjoyable, I must say that. But luckily, I, I was able to win it a few times and uh, that does help. So in these, in these mid-50s years, 56, 57, we'll come on to 58 in a minute, um, you are finishing second in the, in the, uh, in the World Championship behind Fangio, as we've said. Was that frustrating, or were you just so happy racing cars? Did you want to be world champion? Um, the, oh, certainly. Of course, I tried to be world champion. I, I wanted to be world champion. I thought well, it would be a jolly good thing to do. But I, I made up for it because, you see, th there were only a certain amount of Formula One races, and then they've got a tremendous amount of sports car races. Yeah. Not only on the open road, but sports car races in cities and so on, all over different towns in Europe. And the life we had, I mean, Lewis Hamilton's life has got nothing like the quality I had. I mean, why, so, why do you say that? Well, because we had much more fun. I mean, you know, if you're racing today and you're earning 20, he made a lot of more money. He if does. you're making 20 or 30 million, it's a bit different. I mean, we, we were racing where if I won the European Grand Prix in 61, I think, and that was worth 500 pounds, uh, which was a lot then than it is now. But it's, it's completely different to as it is today. The other thing that I think is, uh, is clear, and again, I'm going to refer to a picture in your book, I think it's a picture of Damon Hill. Yeah. Um, of one of his early birthdays, two or three, whatever it is. And you are there for the birthday party yes. that Graham Hill, his father, threw. But so are all the other leading drivers in oh, Britain oh. and the world. You obviously were... I mean, I can't imagine that Lewis Hamilton is close friends with all the people he's racing against now. No, I, d I, don't, <laughs> I don't think that happens now. No, we were all really good friends till the flag dropped. Then when the flag dropped, boy, get out of my way, you know? Having been runner-up, I think, three times already here, you should have won in 1958. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what people say. I'm not an expert. Do you think you should have won in 1958, the World Championship? Well, the point was that, that uh, actually Mike Hawthorne had been disqualified because he did something in a race he shouldn't have done. I gave evidence on his behalf and said this is ridiculous. He should not be penalised. And that, that meant that I lost the points I needed to get the world title. But, I mean, that's what, what I felt was the correct thing to do, and I'd do it today. I mean, it's like if, if you run a race against a guy who's got a, a, a hurt ankle, you're not winning much, are you? 
as you said, you've had Mike Hawthorne's points reinstated uh, from the from the the, uh, the race in, in Portugal, but you still go into the last Grand Prix in Morocco, of all places, right. with a chance to beat him. Yeah, I had to win the race, might not be uh, might not be second, and get fastest lap as well. And he wasn't. He wasn't second. Uh, and it, what actually happened was Phil Hill very, very correctly uh, backed off and gave it, gave him second. So you won the race, but Phil he, Hill, who should have been second, because um, he's a teammate of Hawthorne's, allowed him to come through, and he pipped you for the exactly, world title. Exactly. You're a young man at that stage, Sterling. So I know what young people think. <laughs> you think, don't worry, I'll win it next year or the year after that. Exactly, exactly. Uh, would you have behaved uh, the same way now if you if you then if you'd known what you know now that you weren't? To oh yes, world oh champion? certainly. No, I mean racing is uh, racing is fun to me. Frankly, it's it, it what what you can do today and what you could do then were completely different. Um, you're still racing in that year. You're still racing um, sports cars, and we come then to. Uh, to one of your um, amazing, amazing successes, the race called the Thousand Kilometers at the Nurburgring, um, where you went on, you, you won this race in 1959 and in 1960. We also won it while still being in the contention for the World Championship. And talk to us about winning it in '58. Well, the, the, that circuit, I mean, is a fantastic circuit. Really suits the drivers. It's a driver's circuit. It, they're 14.2 miles round and 190-some corners. And uh, the Aston Martin I was driving was particularly well-suited, other than the gearbox wasn't very nice. But uh, um, What do you mean it wasn't very nice? You'll have to explain. Well, it didn't well, look nice or it wasn't working well. Yeah, no, it, the, the gear, even though <laughs> David Brown was a gearbox manufacturer, he didn't make very nice gearboxes. I mean, they're far better in the Maserati for instance I will say that uh, we keep hearing you lost to the world title 58 to Hawthorne he was second there and of course the following year in the 22nd of January 1959 he was killed in a, in, oddly enough in a road accident yeah. on the A3 near Guildford um, did that affect you badly or was he a friend of yours yes he was a good friend of mine I mean we we, we would fight like anything on the circuit but no he, he would be certainly a, I mean when I got married he was one of my ushers for instance and I knew him that well and it was a, a tragedy about this time we talked earlier on in this section about your celebrity um, the most popular TV programme in Britain by 1959 Sterling is called This Is Your Life Eamon Andrews yeah. very famous TV personality it ran of course for the next 40 years it's a British institution but you were one of the very first people on uh, This Is Your Life the, the show was broadcast on the 27th of April 1959 um, you really must have known you were had really arrived when you're on the, on This Is Your Life in the 1950s you're, you're one of the most famous people in Britain surely well yes I mean it's very, very nice to be honoured that way and uh, and I must say I enjoyed it there's no two ways about it I mean if one's successful I think it brings in a lot of perks one of the things when we were watching that edition of This Is Your Life which is on YouTube to prepare for this programme is something very interesting came out of it a, a man called Paul Bates who yep. was a chap who'd been very very sick confined um, to a hospital bed, became known as the, the horizontal man, and you had taken it upon yourself to kind of try and make his life better. Yes, well, he, he um, a fantastic man, Paul was. I mean, all he could move were two fingers and his head, and he, he was completely paralysed, and uh, I thought the bravery of this man was enormous. He would type with his teeth. And, and, you know, he was a remarkable man, and I thought his, his quality of life was so poor. I, mean, I got him an ambulance to, so he could go around and visit friends and move around the country. But, I mean, he was really a, a, a superman. You took him out driving, too. Yeah, 
He really, he really was a very lovely person. Apart from being doing good works, why did you think you did that? I'll make a guess, because it contrasted perhaps his quality of life so dramatically with your own. Yes, well, that's true. I mean, uh, but his was forced on him not by his own fault. Presumably he's long since passed away, yeah? Yes, he has now. OK. We know sport is cruel. Mike Hawthorne dies on the road. Fangio retires. With those two out of the way, and we heard what the commentator thought about you... Were you sure you were going to be the next world champion? Um, well, I was never sure because I'd lost it so, so many times because the races were three-hour minimum and the cars weren't, weren't as reliable as they were as they are now. Uh, so that was it. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mr. Sterling, um, have you finished Formula One runner-up uh, on four occasions between 55 and 58? Um, we know that you go on still be very successful the next couple of years. We can uh, jump ahead. We have spoilers, as they say in the modern world. You don't go on to be world champion. You briefly alluded to that in the first part of the show, but it must be a major annoyance to you that you didn't, because I guess if you asked people to name five British Formula One world champions, your name erroneously would be in the list. Well, I hope so, yes. Does it bother you still? Um, no, I'm just, it's just a little bit frustrating uh, because I think at one time I did earn it. and uh, But, you know, life goes on. That's very magnanimous of you. Do you think in the, in, the, in the 60 years since that people who are less good drivers than you have won the title? Oh, yes. Would you like to name any of them? No. <laughs> <laughs> OK, we must talk then about uh, 59. You, uh, people were expecting you to be the world champion, but you finished third, despite winning in Portugal and Italy and coming second in Britain in a Cooper. 1960, you won at Monaco. You are injured at Spa. 
Um, but again, you didn't win the title. So you come to 1961, you're still very, very competitive. And let's talk about the triumph of 1961 first. You won the Monaco Grand Prix, which during your sporting position, you said, was your greatest moment in motor race. Tell us about that race. Yeah, I mean, what was interesting about it, remember in those days, it was 100 laps. Now it's only 80, and they're obviously going a lot faster. But um, the Ferrari I was mainly against was only a maximum of three seconds away for the whole race. I mean, we were not more than three seconds. That's, that isn't very far, even if you're going flat out. And uh, very, very uh, gratifying race because I come into a hairpin and I'd see uh, you know the guy who was second and give him a little wave hopefully making him feel gosh I'm not even trying and I was flat out as all the places I could be but it was a very a very re rewarding win. I think um, to add some further detail if I may there were actually three Ferraris on your tail and they took it in turns to try and overtake you and couldn't do it. Yes well I of course I didn't know that I mean I, you saw, just I saw, saw a red car. I, no yes and in front of me I saw the, uh, behind me I mean I saw the red car but I didn't see the the uh, information that let the pits were giving out to the driver so I didn't I didn't realize exactly what was going on there. I've got a quotation from the Guardian the Manchester Garden is it Guardian as it was them it said after the race it said uh, after the onslaught from the ferraris it is doubtful said the manchester guardian that any other driver british or foreign could have defeated this attack oh that's very nice you won in germany and you couldn't have known it then but that was your last grand prix win uh, phil hill the american went on to win the world championship and also we'll talk about why your career at that level ended but it's also a, a second golden age almost when you started in the, in the motor racing with Fangio and Ascari and Hawthorne yeah um, but for British motor racing suddenly in the early 60s there's you um, there's Jim Clark there's Graham Hill it's another golden age, isn't it? Yes, oh, absolutely. I mean, Jim Clark was actually just arriving uh, at the top as I was forced out and Graham Hill great driver Graham Hill yes not, not not as fast as Jimmy but in fact I would say Jimmy Clark was probably one of the fastest drivers ever did that camaraderie that you talked about with the first generation of drivers that you drove with did that continue oh yeah oh right throughout my career yes I think things have changed now because there's such enormous monies and you know they have to, they have to pay lip service to their sponsors and all that sort of thing which of course in my, I never ever drove a car with an advert on it just number uh, yeah literally i said at the start of the program how you started i see pictures of you uh in a, in a woolly jumper um and a crash hat as you called it yeah. um did you ever get into the um the overalls with all with 15 different sponsors on them no never had we weren't allowed to carry sponsors the the only one they got away with was dunlop because the pirelli were there so you had pirelli or dunlop and that's the only advert that uh, i've ever carried in formula one you said earlier that um you continued driving until four years ago it went into your 80s um but obviously not at the very highest level because of what happened in 1962 at goodwood not a grand prix but you're racing as you always raced and you were involved as virtually everybody of your generation of drivers was in a crash that could have killed you do you want to tell us about what happened at goodwood that day yeah well i, I really i'm I'm not too, uh, I don't remember very much of it because I think I was blacked out probably for a few seconds. But I'm going round uh, on the far side, there's a very fast corner called Fordwater. And I'm going, to, and Gr uh, Graham Hill, uh, who I was unlapping because he'd lapped me, uh, was on, the, on my right. I was on his left. I saw him, what 
and mistook, I think, probably his signal because I think he thanked the, the marshals for giving him the, the flag that I was coming because he then pulled across, pulled out, and, and I had to go left and I had to go till I was on the grass, and which, had been, which was wet, and therefore I'd lost control. You smashed into whatever it was. Into a, into a bank at 100 and, 130 miles an hour or so. You're unconscious as, again. I was unconscious. I was paralysed for th- for three months. Uh, I was unconscious from just on a month. You were in a coma for a month. Yeah, exactly. And uh, which was wasn't very good. Uh, not that I knew about it. I Can didn't. you recount your injuries? Do you know what actually physically had happened to you? Uh, physically, you mean? Um, I, I think I probably broke my nose because my face would have hit the, hit the dashboard or the, or the, the windscreen. Um, and the fact that I got this bang on the head, which is what put, put, put me out, of course. How long did it take you to fully physically recover from that? Um, it, it took a year. And unfortunately, I should have given it two years because I didn't realise at the time that I should have. I thought I was back to as I had been. I went and tested myself out at Goodwood, and I wasn't as fast as I should have been. So I think that's it. The press were on me all the time. When are you going to race? When this? And I decided I had to say I'd retire. And once I retire, I couldn't. I couldn't really wait a year and then come back because it's it's rather rather done, overdone. How old were you then? 32. So you're still absolutely at your... your Awful. I'm here. I'm 32. I had to start working for a living. I'd never done any work. I mean, this was my my life. I mean, you're you're right to say that the press were pressuring you, and so you made a decision to retire. But it was a huge decision. Do you regret it now? Oh, very much. I I wish... I mean, I just wish I'd met, uh, I mean, one of these more superb doctors or something who probably would have said, look, wait, bide your time, wait a year. Because I think if I'd waited a year, I think I'd have been all right. But I didn't, and that was it. But given that what happened to Jim Clark, who we talked about earlier, and so many people of that generation, is there an argument, Sterling, that if you carried on racing at that time, in the way things were... We might not be having this conversation now. Oh, oh, very much so. I mean, it was motor racing was very dangerous then. Now, thank God, they've got these new materials and the cars are built so well and so on that uh, you know they're unlikely to get hurt. But then you're very lucky if you got away with it. You say you had to work for a living. What kind of work did you start doing? Well, I mean, I started off by what I find I'm 32 and I don't, I've, I've really got no experience in anything. Uh, so I so I went round opening garages, making public appearances, things like that, where people would pay for my time, and that was it. Well, one man whose Formula One career overlapped with your own is someone who was the world champion on both two and four wheels. Um, another fellow British motorsport great, John Surtees, and of course a former guest here on My Sporting Life. And earlier on, I spoke with him and began by asking John when you first encountered each other. My contact with Sterling came to start with via his cars. Uh, because um, Tony Vanderbilt, who he'd driven with in the year when Vanderbilt won the World Championship, came on to me and said, drive Sterling's car at Goodwood. So I tried that. And uh, that's when uh, really I had my first conversation because Sterling came on that night to find out how I got on. How did you get on when it was a person? Oh, I got on all right. Sterling, a big thing about Sterling was that uh, you knew where you stood. Uh, he's a very competitive person. Uh, the thing I did like is that um, irrespective of how things were going, uh, you know, it, it was either going very well in the race, but if it hadn't been going well, he'd still try. 
And in fact, that was a story, of course, when he had his crash. And I was involved in that as well, because um, Sterling had had a pit stop at Goodwood on that day and was trying uh, to go along and perhaps get the lap record. I had had a pit stop and I was also trying and we both ended up with the joint lap record. You, of course, were world champion and you know what I'm going to say next. Um, Sterling Moss is forever stuck with the title of the greatest driver never to win a world championship. Would you agree with that? Well, of course, I haven't driven against all the drivers in the world. No. Uh, so, but certainly, I mean, at the time when I started, uh, Sterling was the one you judge yourself from a point from a point of view of speed. Uh, Sterling, you could always be sure would make that uh, sort of one hundred percent effort, and uh, was certainly uh, the person who you judge yourself speed-wise. And so it was very good for me to be able to drive his cars and judge myself against him. What made him such a good driver? I think he came up from a sort of, in a way, the grassroots with his, all his experience with the Cooper 500s and his uh, 500cc cars. Uh, that sort of gave him a, a good feel, rather like me with the motorcycles, with the seat of the pants and everything else. Uh, it was very much uh, you know, a man of machine. And he came along and um, he then uh, sort of got together with uh, you know, good teams and drove some very good cars. I think the big thing is he was always a competitor. Mm-hmm. He had this burning desire uh, to, uh, you know, frankly uh, drive. And by hawker by crook, he would somehow do it. And why was it then that he made such a, an impact on our popular culture that for 30 years after, long after he'd stopped driving, policemen would tap on your window and say, who do you think you are, Sonny Jim, Sterling Moss? That happened to me, actually, when I was uh, stopped in Hyde Park. Uh, <laughs> someone actually, actually happened to me, that did. But um, uh, it uh, is a case of, well, got to remember that Sterling wasn't only a competitor on the circuit, but very much off the circuit as well. And he's the first one with uh, Ken Gregory, uh, who sort of uh, he worked with and and did some managerial work and things for him to really start putting the commercial side together as well. And so Sterling's always been very sort of uh, aggressive and uh, and uh, sort of a driving force relative to making the very most of uh, his uh, achievements. So you could argue he was one of the innovators in what we now call celebrity culture. Uh, you could say that, yes. And certainly he was uh, one of those who... Um, didn't just sort of take his uh, skills and his thoughts and everything else to the uh, racetrack, but he also took them away. Yeah, a lovely tribute there from uh, John Surtees. Do you recognise yourself from that portrait? Very charming. I'm most grateful. Thank you, John. <laughs> um, which does take me nicely on to, you know, you, you retire from the, from, the, from the top level of motor racing, but you're still able to make a living, um, as you say, doing appearances. You're a very, very famous man, Sterling, at that time, even now, let's be honest. Um, you enjoyed celebrity status. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't, wouldn't turn it down. It's very nice to be able to get a table when they're difficult to get and all those sort of things. And, and you know, if one has 
to get that, I think you need the respect of the people, which I like to feel I had. And do you, it, did, it must have mean, you, but you've been to fantastic places and met some fantastically interesting people. Oh, I met absolutely enormous amount of interest. I mean, King Hussein, I remember, came to, to dinner one night. Very terribly interesting man. Steve McQueen I knew pretty well. And, you know, a lot of uh, celebrities, I suppose you call them, around the world. And because, uh, uh, funnily enough, a lot of people in entertainment do find motor racing quite an exciting or enjoyable thing to be connected with. George Harrison was nuts about it. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, you worked also as a commentator, but we didn't hear you here because you worked in America. For, you worked for ABC Sports. Yeah, well, I had, I had, that was quite interesting because I'd fly over at the beginning of the week and come back before the end, then the week later fly over. And back. I was doing a tremendous mileage. Were you a good commentator? Um, I think I was all right. I had people around me who could um, tell me, look, this guy's number, that's who it is, and so on. I had a good group behind me, so I, it worked all right for a while. Enjoy it. Yeah. Um, more recently, I'm um, talking just about um, work in the media, uh, and forgive me, I, I was completely unaware of the, r the career of Rory, the racing car, but you, you voiced some of that with Peter Kay. Yes, I, uh, Rory, the racing car, I, I was the announcer and uh, the commentator, whichever you like to call it. And it, it was something I, I'd never done before. And how did, that, how did that work? Did you have to go to a studio? And yes, go to, go to a studio, record it, like we're recording now, yeah. and then they'd play it, and then I'd do the next session. Did you... Um do that on your own, or did you get to meet the other people who were working on it? Um, no, I didn't get to meet. I met only the producer, those sort mm -hmm. of people, but uh, no, no more than that. Okay, if I'm going to return to car racing, uh, you, you never stopped racing. You've raced sports cars, you've done exhibitions, you've done all those sorts of things, um, as you say, across over 100 different kinds of vehicles. In the very start of the 1980s, you kind of made a, a you attempted to make a comeback. Tell me about that proper racing. Big comeback. mistake. I I was offered to drive in an Audi, um, which is a good car and all that sort of thing. But it's certainly something I shouldn't have done because I'd never raced on a, on slicks. You know the the smooth tires they have now, mm -hmm. and uh, it uh, the it was a pretty uh, pretty rough deal really, and I mean the the driving standard was. You know, not that high, uh, and it was a definite mistake. I mean, it's something I shouldn't have done. Why did you do it? Uh, I did it because I, w I had a company who were looking after my uh, incomes and finances and things, and they suggested, look, this is a good idea. We can get you X thousand pounds to do these races, and uh, go ahead. Um, what uh, you say it was it was a hard time. The standard of uh, uh, driving wasn't very high. Were you still a very good driver? Are you still a very good driver? Oh, it doesn't have to do with their with their skill. It's, it's the way they push around. I mean, I've been raced to, you know, I've been used to racing people who certainly would never think of, of banging the side of the car. Well, in my retirement and all that long ago, it made quite a difference because then they they didn't seem to care where they hit you. You also have been very active in racing historic cars are you a car nut uh yes i think i, I think i am to an extent yeah uh, not a mad nut on it i mean i did enjoy racing the cars i've, I've now retired from that when i was when i was 93 i thought 83 i mean i thought well i better get a better get out now but uh, they're nice people in it very nice people and i enjoyed the company and and enjoyed the racing actually as you told us earlier on, eventually um, you've stopped driving, you know, even in those sort of events. 
as recently as 2011, you were, you were at Le Mans um, and you retired there. What, what finally decided you, I'm in my 80s now, I've got to give this a, a break. Well, I, was, I was came across a, a, another carve of similar similar to mine and I could see that if I'm going to beat this other guy, which is what I want to do, I might frighten myself. Now, I've never frightened myself other than when wheels have fell off, fallen off. Obviously, then I get frightened. But I had never uh, considered it in the normal run of thing. And I thought, well, that's not fun. I race for fun. So it's no fun anymore. You live right smack in the middle of, of the capital city. Uh, not an easy place to drive around. Do you still have a car? I do. I have, a, I have an electric car, actually. What kind of car is it? A Twizy. I don't know what a Twizy is. A, twi- like to help a Twizy is a Renault car with with the, the, the electric power. How fast and, can it go? It, uh, about fifty miles an hour. That satisfies range you of days? about fifty miles. Yeah, I mean, it's an ideal city car. You, the great, the greatest thing about it is that you don't have to pay for meters. If I put it on a meter where I am, that saves me five pounds an hour. That's how expensive it is around here. Um, I just want to put one quote to you. There's a lot of quotes on the internet that you're supposed to have said. Yes. <laughs> there are two things no man will admit he cannot do well. Drive and make love. Did you actually say that? I did say that. <laughs> I stand by it. And I, <laughs> I think I'm right. Oh, well, I, don't, I think I don't up to being a poor driver sometimes, as anyone who's seen the edges of my Jeep would, uh, would attest. All right, I've got a couple more here for you then. Did you say, if God had meant for us to walk, why did he give us feet that fit exactly onto car pedals? Yes, I did say similar to that, actually. But I think the most important thing to me is that uh, movement is tranquility. Because as far as I... Movement is tranquility. Yeah. If I'm doing something, I'm much happier than if I'm just laying there. Go and lay on a beach, I'm bored very quickly. But go and lay on the same beach and, and read a book or whatever one does, meet the people and so on. Uh, a lot, lot more activity, that, that's much nicer. And even though you are, with all due respect, in the latter years of, of a human lifespan, you're still the same, are you? It's all about being active and I doing hope things. so, yes. Yeah, I don't, I, I, don't like the next, I don't like the next chapter. No. <laughs> <laughs> One more then. Better to lose honourably in a British car than to win in a foreign one. Yes, I did say that. But why? You went on to drive Mercedes, because I'm British. Maserati. Oh yeah, absolutely. But I, I drove British cars um, all my life and until I managed to, to graduate further. But on British cars, trying to win with them, and unfortunately, we just didn't. We did, but in the end, of course, with the van wall. It's a special edition of the programme because it's coming from Sir Sterling Moss, who's tonight's guest, his house in Mayfair. The reason we wanted to do this is because it is, of course, a fantastically famous house in and of itself, um, featured in every magazine um, that's ever been interested in architecture, interior design, um, and often described as a living example of a place where James Bond might live. Sterling, the thing is, though, you built this house from scratch. Yes, it was the last bomb site in Mayfair, actually. Wow. When, what year was that? Uh, 1962, I built it. Uh, and you I bought it, it just before that. And I, designed, I designed it myself, knowing exactly where I wanted everything to be. And you are, um, in modern parlance, you were a bit of a geek back then, because this was the most technologically advanced home in England, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was. I'll point out the things we go through it, but it was, it was pretty modern, yeah. Yeah, we're at the top of the house now, I should tell people. Um, of course, the famous lift runs through the house, about which we'll hear more later. But looking out there, you have a balcony that looks out to the cul-de-sac in which you live. Um, and decorated 
You'll have to tell me what uh, the, the glass panels. Well, those, the those are glass panels with the etching of of a Mercedes-Benz 300 SLR, which is the car used in, in the races, in the Mille Miglia and and other races. So you wake up to the side of the, those fantastically famous cars uh, just outside your bedroom window. Right, and then of course a curtain comes down. That curtain's just an ordinary curtain. Uh, they've got the the, the uh, chimney going up there from the stainless steel uh, from from the fire beneath it. Yes. And then I've got a lot of storage panels, as you can see behind there, and then a bed, of course, because it's a, a bedroom and a bathroom and so on. You also have innumerable photographs, drawings, cartoons um, from all over the world of, your, of, of, of you in motor cars doing various, uh, obviously, victorious things largely. Um, as I say, let's wander down through the house now um, as it's, and we'll look at some of the technological features and architectural features that made it such a famous dwelling. From where we started then we now moved down two floors um, to what appears to be a very modern kitchen of course and your office with one of the largest television screens I think I've ever seen um, but it's quite a sweet domestic arrangement because you told me you moved here because you wanted to be nearer to your wife. Yes my wife that's her end of the place where she does all the laundry the ironing and so on I'm down here and then in between we've got her sitting area but then over here we've got a descending table which is quite interesting. What does that mean? I'll show you. Yes, so, so Sterling is now pressing what looks like a perfectly ordinary button. Um, we're in a, in a kitchen area. There's no sign of anything here until he presses the button. Hydraulic table there. Yes. Which is uh, actually, you've got a couple of pneumatic str struts on each side. That then comes up to this level, put your meal on it, and then you, you push a button, it goes down, and you can go to the TV room. Okay, so let me there. just explain this. People think they've seen a dumb waiter. We're in the kitchen, a very large modern kitchen of Sir Sterling Moss's home. Um, the table comes up through the, the floor from the ground below you lay the whole table with the meal on it and send it back down again exactly <laughs> exactly then was that your idea yes it was and then you see here if we're if we're eating in this you know, we're eating in the dining room we just pull that forward can you hold that we're now about to see the world's most technologically advanced serving hatch i think as well oh my god the whole of this wall comes down I have to explain again, we're, we're in, in the cooking area of the kitchen, but the central part of the wall descends at the touch of a button to reveal um, the dining room beyond. And through there. Absolutely fantastic. This is, this is all you designed in the early 60s, incredible, yeah. absolutely yeah. incredible. My mind is beginning to be blown here because now um, the, the, the wall that came down um, in, in the, front, the two kitchen units in front of me here are also mobile and you can push the whole of the kitchen or at least the serving area into the dining room. It's incredible. We've now moved through to one of the dining areas and here, Sir Sterling, we get the first sight of something that became very newsworthy a few years ago and we'll hear about it later in the programme. Your house also has a in, an independent lift inside it. Yes, it does. Um, it looks very modern. It's modern. It's made by the William, Williams Formula One team for me, out of carbon fibre. And why did you feel the need to have? Oh, you just wanted to have a lift in well, the it's house. It's a it very, yeah, but it's a very special lift. Yeah. If the house collapsed, that would hold it up. Really? Yeah. Oh wow! So, so, so the black material I'm looking at, you say carbon fibre from yeah. the Williams team, um, which strengthens the lift. Thank you very much indeed. The room we're in here um, is a room where we did uh, the interview. Um, uh, these are, of course, the whole house, Sterling, is absolutely festooned with trophies um, yes, of, of every kind. Yeah, well, that 
That isn't a trophy over there. It's a fantastic Model T Ford in, in, mm-hmm. made in silver, which is rather, rather nice. But uh, everywhere I look, I can see mementos of some yeah. of the great races. Oh, yes. Yeah. That over there, and then here we've got things, and yeah. down there's a model of a GTO Ferrari. Quite a large model, to be yes, fair. I, mean, right. I couldn't sit on it, but you could. <laughs> Given what we're going to be talking about in the uh, last part of the show, your accident in these lift shots, I'm slightly worried every time you press these buttons. Yeah, me? now this one, you see, when it gets here, it's, it's behaving properly now. Good. Now that's lights going out, so there, there's the, the uh, lift. Why don't you take it down to the next floor and we'll meet you there. As I say, the whole house is full of mementos uh, and uh, trophies of every kind. That one there, for instance, is, uh, if I may, um, is, it says here, this is uh, for the, the winning the Nürburgring um, in 1956, a beautiful uh, silver fruit bowl, I guess you'd call that. Yep. This one is the most important thing I've seen here. Um, in a small metal frame with a glass front to it, uh, is a roller uh, index in handwriting. What what is that, Sterling? This this is what J- uh, Dennis Jenkinson Jenks had uh, to tell me where the road went in the Mille Miglia. So as you're uh, driving along, he rolls that scroll he, of paper and through. And then, yeah, as as he see, reads something on there, whatever it may be. Well, I'll just give you. This says Village Nine. Well, that's village the flat out left into Brescia, right under bridge, and right to finish. Brackets. I hope it yes, says right. there. So that's the so, very end. So of that's the, the very end, exactly. I mean, I mean that, but that, that that is the original equivalent of a laptop, which is using by hand as you as you yeah. trundle along at 100 miles, 160 yes, miles. Yes, so he hour. was reading it in here and then giving me hand signals, showing me what you Presumably know. Presumably because the car is so noisy, you can't yeah, shout you couldn't, at you. Yeah, no way. Yeah. Uh, well, that's an amazing yeah. piece of memorabilia, and uh, I hope you never you never need a lot of money, but you would get a lot of money for that as well, wouldn't well, you? Well, they're for sale if anybody wants them. <laughs> there you go. Rep- exact replicas. <laughs> So one of the other things that was remarkable about this house, I remember reading it as a boy um, in, in, in magazines and comics, is that, of course, it, it is so technologically advanced. And I think the, one, the thing that people thought was a wonder of the age was that you were one of the first people in Britain who could, A, pull their curtains without getting out of the chair yeah. and also turn the television on and off. Yes, exactly. Well, I remember the very first on and off was a Dynatron, and that's going back to a long, long time. That's and, TV. Yeah, TV, which was a pretty small screen. Uh, but uh, So I had, had a, a television quite early in here. Why did you want it to be so technologically advanced? Because oh, I think we're, we're in the year 2000. One ought to be able to push a button over there and the air conditioning will start there and I can run the bath in another point by pushing a, a button in the, on any of the six flo- five floors, well, six floors, actually, six levels. You're yeah. one of the first people I've ever met who took Tomorrow's World, the TV programme, made it happen. Yes, exactly. Well, you know, I mean, I, I, the only problem I've got now is to c- keep up with the modern things. Sure. Well, there's a lot of them. But uh, even now, this house is possibly the most modern dwelling I've ever been in. Yes, I would think. I hope so. Absolutely. I hope so. We're now just inside the front door of Sir Sterling's Muse House uh, in central London. And there's a bookcase here right in the middle of the the hallway, Sir Sterling, with with hundreds of leather-bound books. What are these? These are my scrapbooks. Uh, racing are green and uh, black are uh, uh, my p- private life and uh, I think the 180 or 190 there go all the way back I mean if you ask me what I did on a certain hill climb in, in 1948 I just take out the 48 uh, uh, the uh, 48 book and read about it I presume and, and of course sorry when you were doing the research for your recent book these, these were invaluable yeah and there's a cuffs up there that is actually a, 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 a 
birdcage, which is a Italian car, Camerati. That's the, that's the chassis of it going round, and there's the, there's the, what the car was like in the centre. Well, there are a number of beautiful, beautiful models of cars surmounting um, the, 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 the library, but I think the library itself is a national treasure uh, if it does indeed contain um, every day oh. of your life in these large format yes. leather-bound books. Incredible. Then through here, and this is like a garage. I can get my twizzy in here quite easily. We're in a we're in a, you know a mused garage, size of a small bedroom in most London houses. But of yes. course, since you now drive um, a very eco car um, and it's small, you'll actually be able to get your car in here. Yeah, exactly. Um, and given the premium on parking spaces around here, that's a pretty brilliant thing, isn't it? Five pounds an hour, it's worth it. So we're in in the office at Sterling, um, one of many offices. I can see a, a copy of uh, your uh, one of your many books, All But My Life, uh, a beautiful old first edition there lying on the desk. And above our heads here are two bent, very bent, very broken steering wheels. What's the story of those two? Uh, well, one of them is Spa, when the wheel came off at 140 miles an hour and uh, did a bit of a mess, broke my back of my legs. And the other one was my final crash at Goodwood uh, when I went off at 140. And that was that. Happy mementos. Red leather-lined steering wheels with uh, the three-spoked sp uh, uh, way to the middle of them. And they are both, well, if I could, how can I describe them to you? If you got a car and drove it over a metal steering wheel, it's exactly what it looks like. Um, and you're, um, you're not frightened. They, they live there kind of uh, as trophies to your own immortality, do they? Well, they live there. I was lucky. That's the point. That's my lucky, my lucky two steering wheels, I guess. Have you enjoyed living here? Oh, absolutely. Because there's no point in doing all this stuff unless it's a brilliant no, place no, to live no. in. This is home. I mean, south-facing, it's, it's every, everything I look for. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, to be guided around your drum, your gaff, by <laughs> Sir Sterling Moss himself, has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very, very much indeed. It's a pleasure. So, Sterling, in the last section, we talked about this beautiful house in which you live, a very famous uh, dwelling. But, of course, in 2010, an accident here in the house, and it's no exaggeration to say that you cheated death yet again. Yeah. when you fell down a lift shaft here. Yeah, well, it, it was very unfortunate. Uh, the thing is, on the, on the second floor, third floor to the Americans, uh, I went to the lift to go downstairs, opened the door, stepped into it, and the lift wasn't there. But, but how did that happen? Well, it, it shouldn't happen. I mean, that's all that one can say, is it was a mechanical problem, made, or electrical problem, I think, actually, uh, because the there is the safety thing normally, is you can't open the door unless the lift's there. That got misarranged for whatever reason, and there was nothing there, and so I slipped into a gap. Into a void, and you fell, and you're not a young man at this stage. No, no. You fell three floors. You're 80 years of age. Tell us about yeah. your injuries. Uh, both my ankles, of course, and I messed up my arm a bit. But uh, all I can tell you is, I opened the door and goodbye. <laughs> did, did, were you, did you, when you stepped into that darkness or falling, do you remember anything? No. I first thing I remember is my wife came downstairs so fast, and she was there and had my my sort of head in her in her lap. Um, which must have been all of about four seconds after I went, got, went in the lift. Well, you yeah. got downstairs quickly enough. I don't yeah, make, exactly, make light of it. Exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I, have a I must tell you, I have a lift as well. I have a lift made by, by Williams Formula One people in carbon fibre. And I, I wasn't using, the, well, I was using that, except it wasn't there. You broke both your ankles, four bones in a foot, you chipped four vertebrae and suffered extensive skin damage. 
he brought you back into the public eye. There were lots yes. of pictures of you in, in, in hospital, like in a cartoon with every part of your body in some kind of contraption. Yeah. Tell us about your recovery. Well, I've had, I have had, um, oh, the recovery was quite straightforward. I mean, but I've had a lot of accidents in my time because remember, in my era, the materials weren't there. The cars were not that reliable. Uh, and yet the races were, it had to be three hour minimum if they were a world championship. And, and How many uh, serious accidents do you estimate or do you remember having? Six or eight, maybe more. So falling down the lift shaft is another day yeah, in the office, well, really, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. I mean, <laughs> I've, I've, I've broken most, most parts of my body, actually. I know, you know you're 85 years of age. You look in pretty good fettle, but did the accident in the lift shaft have... Uh, has it had long-term consequences for your health, do you think? Uh, no, not really. Quite honestly, I mean, I, I don't know how long it would, t- would take if, I'd, if I was 20 years younger, but it w- wasn't too too bad. It was national news, of course it is, your Sterling Moss. Yes. Um, were you surprised, in the fact that it's 50 years since some of your major sporting achievements, at the outpouring of public sympathy for you? No, it's very gratifying. I think, it, I think the British public like to see somebody who'll have a go, and I'm a racer. I'm not a driver, I'm a racer and I enjoy racing and trying to win. Uh, if I'm not winning, I'm going to try and get the lap record. And that's my philosophy as to where I am as a person, I suppose. And when you were in the hospital, were you aware of the uh, outpouring of, uh, my goodness, apart from the one or two people who said, is he still alive? People saying, yeah. wow, it's Sterling Moss. Yes, uh, well, I've, I've had quite a lot of experience, I regret to tell you, in, in my racing career because of having cars not being that strong and wheels coming off and so on. Okay. Um, you're well now, though. Oh, very well. Good. You look well. And I'm delighted yeah. that people listening to us for the last two hours will hear what great fettle you're in. Um, which brings us kind of full circle now. You talked about the racing in the 1950s and 60s as being better fun and, and superior to that which we're seeing today, which, of course, is a global industry and a sport. If I was to try and nail you down, in your lifetime, who have been the five best Formula One drivers? Well, you've got people like Senna, obviously. Fangio, in my mind, the greatest Formula One driver ever. I think I think Lewis is going to be pretty... He's, he's, he's on the way to be a, being a great, I think, very frankly. You haven't mentioned Schumacher? Michael Schumacher came in at the right time with the right car and did a good job. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't really put him in the same league, if you like, uh, as, as, as uh, Senna. Would you um, say the same thing about Sebastian Vettel then as well? Oh, Vettel, I think, is tremendous. Tremendous. But, of course, the cars they're driving today are, are beyond my understanding. I mean, they, they really are so complex. And it, it, it's staggering to me how fast they can go around the corners they do. When we talk about Formula One and Grand Prix, I think we, you can help me. It is vehicles with four wheels and a, st- and a steering wheel but really the difference between the cars you drove and these ones they're driving now, it's almost a different sport, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, com- completely different. From the tyres upwards, you see, I mean, I've never raced, or in my career, I never raced on slicks, mm-hmm. uh, which give enormous benefits. Uh, and downforce wasn't a word that uh, sort of existed. Uh, but it's the evolution, and, and I think the cars of today are absolutely stunning. I mean, they are the fastest way of getting around a circuit that you can. And I can't imagine, I mean, I was in motor racing developing at the time of the development of disc brakes, and they made an enormous difference between a drum and a, and a disc. Well, disc brakes, of course, now on every car in the world, nearly. And uh, so that's a good thing, because it just shows you how fast you can 
develop something to make it right for the public through racing. Do you care about the aesthetics of car racing? Do you care about whether the cars look beautiful, Sterling? Uh, I'm, no, I'd rather drive a car that looks good, though, I must say, from, from the personal point of view. But no, I, I think I'm functional. If, if you can show me why it's better to do this or that, then OK, that's a functional thing, then we use it. A few years ago, um, the, that combination of McLaren and Mercedes that currently does business uh, launched a quite extraordinary space-age I mean, this is literally four years ago, isn't it? Yeah. Space Age car. It's one of the most expensive cars ever produced, and they called it the Sterling Moss. Were you were you really moved Did by they? that? Yeah. Oh, I think it was a run of oh, maybe it was a run of a certain amount of them tweaked or this and that and the other done. Uh, yeah, I know of it now. You mentioned that. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that, that, must, that must have pleased you, unless they didn't pay you. Uh, no, I'm sure that if, if they did, they would have paid me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, just talking about aesthetically, what is the most beautiful car you've ever owned or driven? Well, the point is it's difficult to, to split it because if a, if a car's good enough to go out and win the Mealy Melia, that is the car that would please me most, and that's a 300 SLR Mercedes. Now, uh, admittedly, if I was going to race it round uh, Monaco, I wouldn't choose that car. I would choose, you know, a Cooper or something else. So uh, it's very difficult to give you a definitive answer. You've admitted that uh, the modern cars, and quite why wouldn't they, have left you behind scientifically because we don't. None of us know really what's going on with them. What do you think the future of Formula One is? I mean, Bernie Eccleston has sold the, the sport three or four times to different people. He certainly made it a very popular sport. Oh, but whether Bernie's... it's a great sport, it's never the matter, isn't it? Well, Bernie's done a tremendous amount for Formula One, really. I mean, I know a lot of people have said this is bad and this, but he's held it all together. And now, you know, when you see the trucks, they're all lined up beautifully. Everything is organised as, as nicely as it can be. And the races are pretty good. You know, I mean, uh, we don't get, and haven't had for a while, one company winning all the races. I mean, it's quite a few people out there potentially could have success. Well, how would you compare it with American formula like Indy or, you know, the, the, their own stock cars where the cars are so similar that you get them four and five abreast on oval tracks, I admit. How would you compare it with, with the way they're racing, car racing is in America? Well, there's, there's a lot of car, different types of car racing over there, as you obviously realise. But uh, from my point of view, I prefer watching our cars than theirs. Although I must admit that some of their racing is very exciting. One last thing I meant to ask you about um, is you are, of course, Sir Sterling Moss and knighthood. Are you one of those people for whom that's a very important thing? Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm very proud of being knighted. Uh, it's, it's a tremendous fill-up to me. I, I've, I, I like to hope that I deserved it, and I certainly wear it with honour. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports, My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening. And make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast and Spotify for more top talk sport content. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.